It was the first recorded murder in the sleepy town of Kenilworth, a tony suburb north of Chicago. A 21-year-old woman, the daughter of a political candidate, was slain in her own bed. This episode, Horror on the North Shore, the Murder of Valerie Percy. I'm Tommy Henry, and this is the Chicago History Podcast. As this episode deals with a gruesome murder, it is not intended for delicate ears. Listener discretion is advised. The house at 40 Devonshire Lane was quiet in the early morning hours of September of 1966. Breezes blew in from Lake Michigan, and waves crashed against the beach not far from the property. The sky was pitch black, and heavy clouds floated above. A lone figure approached the back door of the sprawling property, cutting a hole through a screen. The person then used a cutting tool to score the glass, but it wasn't deep enough to cleanly remove the pane. The figure then cut an X in the remaining glass and broke it. With the window pane now gone, the intruder reached his hand through and unlocked the door, giving him access to the home of millionaire Charles Percy. Charles Harding Percy was born in Pensacola, Florida in 1919 and moved with his family to the Chicago area when he was still an infant. From a young age, Percy showed he had a drive. At age five, he was selling magazine subscriptions. By age eight, he had several hundred dollars in the bank and won a year's membership to the local YMCA for selling more subscriptions than any other youth in the Chicago area. Percy attended Nutra High School in the northern suburb of Winnetka, where he held down four jobs at the same time. Newspaper carrier, office boy, janitor, and carporter. After high school, he enrolled at the University of Chicago on a half-tuition scholarship. Percy worked several part-time jobs to cover the rest of his expenses, eventually completing a degree in economics. One of Chuck Percy's jobs in college was as a sales trainee for Bell & Howell, which was founded in Chicago in 1907 and made its name making cameras and lens equipment for Chicago's growing motion picture industry. Bell & Howell would go on to build cameras for the home market as well. After graduation from the University of Chicago in 1941, Charles Percy began working at Bell & Howell full-time. With his solid business instincts, he quickly rose in the Bell and Hall ranks and was elected to the Board of Directors at just 23 years old. After serving three years in the Navy during World War II, Percy returned to the company in 1945. In 1949, Charles Percy was made president of Bell and Hall at age 29. Under his guidance, the company saw phenomenal growth, with sales increasing from $13 million to $160 million annually and going public on the New York Stock Exchange. In addition to his successes at work, Charles Percy got married in 1943 to a woman named Jean Dickerson, 
with whom he had twin daughters, Valerie and Sharon, both born in 1944, and a son, Roger, born in 1946. Tragically, Jean Percy died during surgery to a reaction to penicillin in 1947 at the age of 26. Charles Percy remarried three years later to Lorraine Geyer, and the couple added two more children to the Percy family, Gail, born in 1953, and Mark, born in 1955. Charles Percy entered politics in 1946 when he served as a Republican precinct captain, helping returning World War II vets in north suburban Kenilworth. Chuck Percy caught the eye of Dwight D. Eisenhower, who encouraged Percy to pursue politics. Percy would later acknowledge, quote, General Eisenhower was the controlling influence that caused me to come into public life. He was the only man who could have caused me to seek elective office. End quote. In 1956, Eisenhower named Percy as special ambassador, representing the U.S. at presidential inaugurations in Bolivia and Peru. Percy later ran for governor of Illinois in 1964, losing to Democratic incumbent Otto Kerner. In 1950, the Percy family moved to Kenilworth, an ultra-rich area roughly 15 miles north of downtown Chicago. At that time, the 240-acre village, which was incorporated in 1889, had three traffic lights and a population just shy of 2,800. Charles Percy's wife, Lorraine, was told when they moved in that the farmhouse on the property had been used to shelter survivors of the Lady Elgin disaster, the steamship that sank in Lake Michigan off Waukegan, Illinois, in 1860, resulting in more than 300 lives lost. If you'd like to hear that story, check out episode 401 of this podcast. Roger Percy later told reporters that his father had long been a fan of the property on Devonshire and allegedly asked the owner to contact him if he ever decided to sell it. Charles Percy was just 18 at the time. The Percy family called the 17-room estate with an indoor swimming pool and tennis court Windward due to the strong breezes off the lake. Valerie and Sharon Percy graduated New Trier High School in 1962 and headed off to college, Sharon to Stanford and Valerie to Cornell University. At Cornell, Valerie joined a sorority and was part of the Student Government's Academic Affairs Committee and the International Committee of the Student Union's Willard Strait Hall. While in college, Valerie also lived and studied in France, where she became engrossed in French literature and fell in love with French culture. She also spent time in Lucerne, Switzerland. In 1966, Charles Percy decided to run for the Illinois Senate against incumbent Paul Douglas. After graduating from Cornell University, Valerie Percy returned to Illinois to help with her father's campaign for the U.S. Senate. While all of Chuck Percy's children helped with his campaign in various ways, Valerie was the most active, serving as head of the Volunteers for Percy, which carried a fair amount of responsibility. She was in charge of organizing, supervising, and guiding the activities of roughly 40 young Percy for Senate campaign workers, 
and helped set up 22 campaign centers in the Chicago area. Valerie made dozens of friendly short speeches for her father. She was often seen out and about with a bright, cheerful smile and wore a button that read, Hi, I'm Valerie Percy. Chuck's my dad. Valerie's boyfriend from college, Andrew Potash, worked on Chuck Percy's campaign during the summer of 1966, but left by mid-September to attend graduate school in England. After a summer of campaigning for her father, Valerie was two days away from leaving for postgraduate studies at Johns Hopkins University. Sharon Percy, Valerie's twin, had spent part of her summer post-college in the Congo, a graduation present from her family. She had come down with malaria during the trip and came home early, but was on the mend by September of 1966. The sound of breaking glass woke Lorraine Percy from her slumber on the morning of September 18, 1966. She later told investigators she heard, quote, noise and a few steps in the room below my room. I heard a noise. I don't know exactly what it was. Then the steps, end quote. Lorraine thought one of her three daughters, Valerie, Sharon, or Gail, all of whom were home, may have knocked over a glass. She fell back asleep. Her husband Chuck was beside her, undisturbed. He had been out campaigning until late and had only been asleep for a few hours. A short time later, Lorraine Percy was awakened again by the sound that seemed to come from one of the girls' bedrooms. It sounded like a low moan. She got up to check on her kids. In her mind, the moan was likely coming from Sharon's room, as Sharon was still overcoming the bout of malaria contracted during her trip to the Congo. As she navigated the hallway in near-pitch darkness, she realizes the noises weren't coming from Sharon's room. They were coming from Valerie's. Lorraine Percy saw light coming from under the door in her daughter Valerie's room. She called out Valerie's name without response. She opened the door and found a shadowy figure leaning over the bed of her daughter, holding a flashlight. The intruder turned the flashlight toward Lorraine Percy, momentarily blinding her. The low moan from Valerie's bed continued, and for a moment, time stood still for Lorraine Percy. Lorraine screamed, pulling the door to the bedroom shut behind her. Adrenaline fueled by pure terror spiked in her body as she ran down the hall back toward her bedroom, screaming, She's been stabbed! Call the police! She heard footsteps down the hall and for a moment wasn't sure if she was being pursued by the intruder or if the intruder was escaping down the back stairs. She flipped the switch on the wall in the hallway that activated the burglar alarm. Her husband was now awake as well. The burglar alarm, high-tech for the time, blasted a siren easily heard in surrounding homes. Outdoor floodlights filled the nearby yards with blinding light. Charles Percy ran down the hall to Valerie's room and turned on the light. His daughter, lying on the bed, was covered in blood. He ran from the room to shut off the alarm in order to call the police. Lorraine Percy returned to Valerie's room. She grabbed a pillow to wipe the blood from Valerie's head and face. 
Lorraine reached for her daughter's left wrist and checked for a pulse. Seeing the horrific injuries inflicted on Valerie, Lorraine Percy must have known there was little hope. The low moan coming from Valerie began to quiet and then stopped. Valerie Jean Percy was dead. After calling the police, Charles Percy bounded down the back staircase, the one the intruder likely used in his escape. He searched the first floor, finding all the main access points were still locked. He stepped into the family room, noticed something odd. A rarely used French door near the family's piano was missing a pane of glass. Fearing the intruder might still be in the house, Charles Percy raced back upstairs. By now, Lorraine Percy had activated the alarm system again and gathered daughters Sharon and Gail, who were understandably distraught. The Percy's two sons were not home at the time. Young Mark was staying at a friend's house, and Roger was in California. Charles Percy turned off the alarm system and continued searching the house. Kenilworth police and fire department personnel from the neighboring town of Winnetka arrived. Percy suggested calling his own doctor, Robert Huff, who lived just a few doors south. Dr. Robert Huff and his wife Nan were awakened by the first alarm from the Percy home. Looking out their window, Nan Huff didn't see anything unusual. The alarm stopped and she climbed back into bed. When the alarm went off a second time, Robert Hoff thought it might be a mistake. A few minutes later, the Hoff phone rang. Bob, this is Chuck Percy. Will you please come right over? Valerie's been injured. We've already called someone else, but we'd like you to come right away. A policeman is on his way to get you. Dr. Hoff went to the Percy home and up to Valerie's room, but there was nothing that could be done. Valerie had suffered 14 stab wounds to her face, neck, and abdomen. The left side of her skull had been crushed by the killer's blows, thought to be made by something akin to a fireplace poker. A pathologist from the Cook County Coroner's Office later told Chicago Area 6 homicide detective Joe DeLeonardi that Valerie Percy's wounds were consistent with, quote, a bayonet type of weapon, end quote. An autopsy would show there were no drugs or alcohol in her system, and there were no signs of sexual assault. A village like Kenilworth did not have the resources for something like this in 1966, so the Chicago police were notified, including the crime lab. Soon the scene was locked down as police searched for clues. It was soon determined that nothing had been stolen from the house. In something that seems unheard of in today's political climate, a telegram arrived mid-morning at the home of the Percy family. Senator Paul Douglas, Charles Percy's opponent in the race for Senate, expressed his condolences. My heart goes out to you over your cruel and terrible loss, the telegram read. Douglas made an announcement of his own. He was suspending his campaign immediately as a result of the killing. Percy soon announced the same. All campaigning for that Illinois Senate seat would cease. Charles Percy and his family retreated into the house, isolating themselves in the master bedroom, where Lorraine Percy read the Bible and answered questions from investigators as needed. 
Police forensic units scoured the house and the surrounding area for what they believe the intruder was likely holding when he attacked Valerie. A knife, a flashlight, a tool used to cut the screen and glass, and whatever was used to bludgeon the skull of Valerie Percy. Divers assisted the U.S. Coast Guard in searching the waters of Lake Michigan near the Percy home, hopeful they might find something in the choppy waters just offshore. Sharon Percy's boyfriend Jay arrived to comfort her. Roger Percy arrived at O'Hare Airport, where a car was waiting to take him to the family home. 25 minutes later, he was reunited with his family. Nearly five hours after the murder of Valerie, the family was all together at 40 Devonshire Lane. Two days after the death of Valerie Percy, a memorial service was held at Kenilworth Union Church, a non-denominational church not far from the Percy home. 400 mourners showed to pay their respects, and as the church sanctuary could only hold 300, the others had to listen to the service over speakers in a nearby room. Family, friends, business associates, and those who were affiliated with Charles Percy through his political efforts, including former Illinois Governor William Stratton, all joined together to mourn the life of a young woman taken far too soon. Pink roses, Valerie's favorite flower, were placed on the church altar. The Chicago Tribune later reported, quote, Sharon Percy, twin sister of the slain girl, cried during the services, and was comforted by her father. The Percy family soon left for California, away from the growing media attention and away from the scene of Valerie's murder. Three days after the murder, a bayonet showing no signs of rust was retrieved from the lake near the Percy home. According to news reports, it was found about 40 yards from the Percy's private beach, about the distance a man could throw such an object. Cook County Coroner Andrew J. Tolman said the 4-inch hilt at the end of the 10-inch blade could have been used to bludgeon Valerie Percy. Two weeks had elapsed since Valerie was killed by the unknown assailant. As the investigation into Valerie Percy's murder continued, some wondered if it might be politically motivated. Could Valerie have been killed so that Charles Percy would drop out of the race? Percy said that he believed neither he nor his campaign were the target of the attack. With no solid developments in the case, Charles Percy resumed his campaign for the Illinois Senate seat, eventually winning with 56% of the total turnout, with what some called, quote, sympathy votes, end quote. Other clues were found at the Percy home, a fingerprint that didn't belong to the family or campaign workers, a handprint on a railing, a glove, a moccasin, but nothing that helped investigators zero in on a suspect or a motive. Charles Percy announced a reward of $50,000 for information leading to the arrest of those responsible for his daughter's death. 
The Percy family sold their Kenilworth property when they left for Washington, where Charles Percy would go on to serve three terms. Investigators looked into anyone that might have motive to kill Valerie Percy. Old boyfriends, campaign workers, supporters of her father's political rivals, without success. Although nothing was stolen, could it have been a robbery gone wrong? And the reason nothing was stolen was simply because the thief was interrupted, first by Valerie waking up and then by Mrs. Percy's screams? There was an odd assortment of those who confessed to the murder from teen boys to adults, but all were quickly discounted. In 1972, six years after the murder, a Chicago man named Stuart Goldstein, awaiting trial for allegedly killing a Las Vegas cocktail waitress, confessed to a fellow prisoner that it was he who killed Valerie Percy. After Illinois investigators traveled to Las Vegas to interview Goldstein, they described Goldstein as, quote, just one of 11 guys, end quote, who confessed to the crime. Art Pataki, a reporter for the Chicago Sun-Times beginning in 1943, wrote a series in the early 1970s on the murder of Valerie Percy, which led to renewed activity in the investigation. According to Glenn Wall in his book Sympathy Vote, a reinvestigation of the Valerie Percy murder, Art Pataki was the son of a Chicago police captain who used some dubious news-gathering techniques, which included impersonating law enforcement officials and plying sources with drinks. According to Wall, Pataki was known for, quote, writing favorable columns about sources, but rigid prose about those who he believed had crossed him. They included police, defense attorneys, politicians, and, according to some of those who knew him, a few bad guys, too, end quote. For that series, which reads as though it is primarily based on the hearsay of convicted criminals, Pataki was awarded journalism's highest honor, a Pulitzer Prize, which Pataki shared with longtime Sun-Times rewrite man Hugh Hoff. Pataki had received a tip that the killing occurred during a robbery gone wrong. More on that in a moment. By December of 1973, more than seven years after the slaying of Valerie Jean Percy, Illinois State Police had interviewed more than 14,000 people, spent over $300,000, that's more than $2 million in today's dollars, and painstakingly pursued 1,317 leads. There are many reasons someone would implicate others as to being involved in a murder. To get attention, for revenge, to potentially get reward money, or, if you're a criminal, you might tell lies in order to lessen a prison sentence or cast doubts about others. That quickly became the case with the Percy murder investigation. One name often mentioned in connection with the murder of Valerie Percy is Frank Homer a career criminal whose book, The Home Invaders, Confessions of a Career Criminal, was later turned into the Michael Mann film Thief, starring James Caan. 
Homer dedicated a chapter of the book to explaining why he wasn't responsible for the Percy murder. Homer would later say, quote, I've never been involved in murders. That's not my bag. I'm sure a professional burglar didn't do it. Most of us just aren't interested in that kind of thing. End quote. One of the more promising leads was a career criminal and convicted rapist from Chicago named Fred Malchow, who had worked with Homer as part of a ring of thieves. Malchow died one year after the Percy murder in a plunge from a railroad trestle after escaping from sheriff's deputies outside a Pennsylvania courthouse. Malchow had made some incriminating statements to associates about the Percy murder, and even Malchow's own brother thought he may have been responsible. Valerie's twin sister Sharon would go on to marry boyfriend Jay Rockefeller one year after the murder. The couple raised four children while Sharon was a political wife as her husband served as governor of West Virginia for a decade before moving to the U.S. Senate in 1984. Since 1989, Sharon Percy Rockefeller has been president and CEO of WETA, the public television and radio stations in Washington. She named her only daughter, Valerie, in memory of her slain twin. In 2009, Sharon Percy Rockefeller announced that her father, Charles Percy, had Alzheimer's disease. Charles Percy died two years later in September of 2011 at a Washington, D.C. hospice, one day before the 45th anniversary of his daughter Valerie's death. He was 91 years old. Windward, the Percy family estate, where the family spent nearly 17 years and welcomed family, friends, and such notables as Richard Nixon and Indira Gandhi before that horrible September day in 1966, was demolished in 2010 and rebuilt as a private home. Kenilworth police investigated new leads in the Percy murder in 2011, but by summer of 2012, all had been cleared. Percy case investigator Joe D. Leonardi was asked in 2011 whether Valerie Percy's killer could have been a member of the robbery gang headed by Jackson Wilson and Fred Malchow. D. Leonardi's views remain unchanged. Quote, The Malchow gang are professional burglars. And remember, nothing was touched in the house. Everything was intact. And a burglar would steal something of value on the first floor and get out. End quote. D. Leonardi remains convinced the motive was revenge and that the intruder knew the layout of the house. Sympathy Vote, a reinvestigation of the Valerie Percy murder published by author Glenn Wall in 2013, is a detailed examination of the Valerie Percy case. Wall, who lived just a mile from the Percy family when the murder occurred, points the finger in the murder at a troubled neighbor named William Thorson III, who had an obsession with a variety of weapons, including those of a military nature like bayonets. It is a fascinating read if you'd like to learn more about this horrifying bit of Chicago area history. In November of 2019, Sharon Percy Rockefeller was honored at the White House, quote, for being a renowned champion of the arts, generous supporter of charity, and a pioneer of new ideas and approaches in the field of public policy, end quote. 
Valerie Percy's ashes were transferred from Illinois to Oak Hill Cemetery in Washington, D.C. in 2008. She is buried near her father and stepmother, Lorraine, who passed in 2020 in her early 90s. As of this recording, the murder of Valerie Jean Percy has not been solved and is open and ongoing. listening to Horror on the North Shore, The Murder of Valerie Percy. This episode was written, recorded, and edited by me, Tommy Henry. As always, if you have any questions about anything covered today, anything to add, or have an idea for a future episode, I'd love to hear about it. Send me an email at chicagohistorypod at gmail.com. I have links to items related to Chicago's amazing history in the show's notes. If you or someone you know is a history nerd like me who would like to learn more, anything ordered through those links, not just the items listed, may earn a small commission for the podcast and help offset production costs at no additional cost to you. Check out the Chicago History Podcast Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram pages for articles and pictures related to this episode and past episodes throughout the week. Much of the original art for the Chicago History Podcast used on the social media pages was created by John K. Schneider. Thanks, John. He can be found at Angel Eyes Art JKS on Instagram or via email at angeleyesartjks at gmail.com. Thanks, as always, for your support and interest in these stories of Chicago's history. As always, get out and explore when possible. Learn more about whatever city you live in and stay safe. <laughs>